I'm sure we made a few people kind of throw up in their mouths. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 290 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jerome Hardaway. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing? I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, uh, gearing up for Devo- devopsremoteconf.com. You can go check it out at devopsremoteconf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Brandon Hilkert. Hello from Pennsylvania. You want to give us a brief introduction? I don't know if we've had you on the show before. Yeah, no, this is my first time. Sure. Um, my name is Brandon. I've been uh, working on Ruby for, I guess, since 2009-ish or so. Um, had a background in Microsoft uh, systems administration before that and worked my way to development, then more open source, and that's how I ended up with Ruby. So I've been uh, working on applications and products for, for the last seven years or so and with Ruby. Very cool. And you wrote a book called Build a Ruby Gem. I did. Yep. That was uh, a couple years ago. Um, you know, it really started when I um, when I first started getting into Ruby and, and learning more about Rails a couple years into it. You know, it, it was clear to me that uh, the community was strong because of uh, not only open source, but everybody's contributions um, with Ruby Gems. You know, to be able to put together a Rails application and and do just about whatever you can imagine just by Googling a Ruby gem and uh, a lot of times just putting it in the application. And so for me, it was, it was, a, it was a big light bulb moment, especially coming from you know, Microsoft and, and the closed systems they had uh, back then that you know, all this stuff relies on people contributing and maintaining. Um, and so that was, that was my first sort of foray into a, a really strong open source ecosystem. And so Having having gone through that and seen that, you know, my my first curiosity was, well, how do these things work? And um, at, at the time, I was working on an application and you know using kind of the standard stack of Rails with authentication and authorization and you know most of the tools that people use these days. And um, I wanted to give back in in some way, and I knew that um, that required diving into open uh, open source Ruby gems, you know, and understanding how they worked, and then you know, being able to help um, projects do whatever I could to make them better. And so, you know, when I wanted to go approach that, the first question was, well, what is a Ruby gem, right? And then, like, how are they structured? How do they work? How do they work with the ecosystem as a whole? And that's really what caused me to dive in from a very analytical standpoint. You know, my head wanted to understand every single piece of it before I I sort of took the dive. So, um, yeah, I went in hard and, and tried to uh, figure out all the pieces, and then it, it became clear to me that this wasn't just um, a challenge for me on my own. This was, you know, a lot of people were having similar challenges, not only for how are Ruby gems work and how are they structured, but how do I get involved, you know, and how do I start? If I want to contribute, how do I contribute? What what goes into it? How do I find the right project? Uh, do I just pick an issue off or, um, you know, ways to contribute? So I think it first started with uh, a blog post I wrote about, you know, it was called three ways to get started with open source. And it was kind of one of those moments. I had first started the blog and um, posted it and it, you know, did one of those kind of Hacker News front page uh, results. And um, I thought, wow, man, this is this is something other people are thinking about, too. And it seems to be valuable. And so that's sort of where I continued down that path of diving into, well, what was what was interesting about this piece? And then what is it that people want to know more, Um, which ultimately led me to, you know, Ruby gems and and their structure. So there's more to it then than just using Bundler to create a gem and then putting all of your crud into the lib folder. 
Yeah, you certainly could do it that way. I think, um, you know, one of the, as most listeners probably know, you know, rails being, uh, a big ecosystem in the Ruby community. Um, there's a lot of ways to integrate into rails and, and that's what I've found to be one of the most common questions around, you know, whether it's a, um, you know, you want to integrate with active record or you want a controller module, right. Or, um, a rake task, right. Or I want to be able to install my gem that puts, uh, database migrations into my, my, um, application. There's a lot of levels of, of that integration. And I tried to spell out, uh, in the book how to go about those pieces. But, um, for sure, the most commonly asked question is, is about rails engines and the power that they bring and, and the power you can, um, how you can extend an application through whether it's JavaScript assets or a number of other things. But uh, Rails engines seem to be uh, one of the more popular questions uh, I get asked through the book. Yeah, I can see that. There's definitely more to Rails engines than just create a gem with Bundler and then put all your crap in lib. Well, I think that, you know, the good thing about Bundler is that it gives you a lot of the things you need, you know, with a single command. And I, I definitely used... Uh, bundler as the tutorial in, in the book. Um, and you know, it's like all the details in a gem spec, uh, it's necessary to get started. You know, you, you don't want to have to dig into what methods are necessary on, uh, the spec file and, um, you know, it just get, gets you running pretty fast. And so for someone that wants to just dive in, you know, a single command and then maybe a few methods, you have a gem, you know, start to finish pretty quickly. Uh, for someone that, ha you know, wants to take a more complex um, piece of code and, and modularize it in this way. Um, you know, Bundler helps remove kind of those, those pieces that are far less interesting, right? The kind of the scaffolding of the whole thing and, and giving you some rake tasks out of the box to immediately um, release new versions, you know, push to GitHub, all that stuff. So, you know, with those tools now, it, it makes it pretty easy. But yeah, I think um, throwing everything in the lib directory could... <laughs> could end up to be a, a mess if you, if you let it. That's not to say it wouldn't work, right? right. <laughs> it would definitely work. Uh, but, you know, that, that's one of the things where, um, as I've seen people, you know, fortunately start to create new gems, you know, it, it, it extends the ecosystem at the same time, um, you know, it, it's potentially a negative, right? Because we have a lot of gems in the community that, that are very good and do what you want. And so there's less space to sort of innovate there in a sense of, uh, for feature parity, right? Like it, it's, it's pretty unlikely somebody's going to come out and say, this is the new thing that every rails app needs. Um, and that's going to be the case. So I think it gets people started quickly, but you know, there's a, there's a sense of responsibility uh, around the community and, and what you create and what you put out there, uh, to be public. You know, one of the common things that, um, I heard a few times after I released the book was, you know, from people that clearly had a lot of experience in the community was, well, this is going to cause, you know, a, a bunch of different versions of random gems and then just like clog up this, you know, our, our community here with gems that are pointless or testing or, um, you know, just kind of clogging up Ruby gems. And, you know, I think that's, that's probably true in some sense that, People made some test gems to try and see how things worked, um, how they integrated in your application. Um, but you know, at the same time, people need to start somewhere, and I think that was a good place to do it. But um, I had a I have a chapter in the book about you know sort of the responsibility of the open source Ruby gem creator, um, pointing out those issues that you know creating a duplicate named gem that's already out there is not productive, 
and it's not helpful, right? So if I go looking for uh, the Sidekick gem, you know, and, and somebody else, and there's five GitHub repositories that show up for Sidekick, that's not helping anyone, right? Now I need to dig into Ruby gems maybe and see which one is sort of the official release of Sidekick if I didn't know. And, um, you know, so with the naming, it's important to sort of keep that, keep that out of the way from the existing tools out there. Uh, make sure you're not kind of walking on someone else's toes and, and make it clear to those that come after you if, if they choose to use your gems, uh, you know, which one they're using. That makes sense. I do want to back up a minute because I know that we have people who are new to uh, the community. We, all, we always have new people coming in. Um, so can you just walk through the process that you go through to create a gem? Just so How was that? I was actually going to ask that as well. Like, yeah. on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you feel like uh, your book, um, does it correlate with, like, new users, people who are um, are new to Ruby? So I think you know, what we do in our nonprofit, uh, teaching them how to build a Ruby, Ruby gem and doing some of the smaller things like using Rack and Sinatra, we, we value that and feel like it's an important skill to have. It can be a Ruby dev. So I want to you know, your input on that as well. Yeah, the book starts with assuming that you know Ruby, uh, just a little Ruby. And it doesn't mean you're an expert, uh, but it also doesn't, you know, go through, you know, at some point you have to make an example to, um, to build a gem. And, and in the book's case, I used a, a lottery number generator. So there's not tons of methods within the gem itself. It's called Megalotto. And, but it also doesn't say, here's how to generate an array and here's how to take, you know, a, a sample from the array. Um, it, it assumes that those are either things that you feel comfortable with or that you're, you know, savvy enough to look up to say, oh, okay, I know what this method does. Um, but having said that, it also assumes that you've not created a gem before. So it's, you know, the, the, the basics. Uh, so to answer your question about, you know, the path, I mean, like Chuck said, it's, it's to get started, you know, bundle, uh, if you have bundler installed in your system, which most, uh, do at this point, bundle space gem, and then space, you know, the name of your gem. So in, in, uh, for sucker punch, for instance, is a gem I wrote a couple years ago. And, and so you would do, you know, if you were starting fresh, you would do bundle space gem space, and then the name sucker punch, uh, and it would create a project scaffold for you with a lib directory, a gem spec, rake file, you know, all the, all the files sort of necessary to get your gem started and, uh, get writing, uh, code, it would spit that all out for you in a structure that was acceptable and made sense. And so, you know, Ruby gems themselves, it spits out the structure. If, if you want to do, do no more than just package it, um, uh, you know, a Ruby gem in the sense is, is that whole folder directory just packaged up and uploaded to, uh, well, it can be uploaded anywhere, but in most cases, public gems are uploaded to rubygems.org, uh, which is the keeping repository for uh, most of the functionality that people use in Ruby gems. All right, cool. Thank you. Thank you for um, expanding that. So yeah, definitely. Uh, I just uh, one side point is that just the code, you know, the code structure. One bundler does give you a lot of stuff, but you know, if um, if like me at the time, I was I was working on a Rails application and um, I came into the Ruby community sort of with Rails all at the same time. And I think a lot of people do at the same time, although you, know, you mentioned that a lot of people are, or some of the, you know, the camps are starting with Rack and Sinatra, and that's awesome too. Um, one of the things that's not obvious if you start with, you know, Rails or um, a system that does some kind of auto-loading 
is, you know, the code director, if you have a lib folder and you have an entry file, the name of your gem, you're going to load all the other files that are in your gem. And that's not necessarily uh, something that's obvious to a lot of people. I think in a way Rails has, has spoiled us to, you know, know that if we put something in a directory, it's going to be loaded and, and the namespace will be there and, and it'll load just fine. And, you know, so one of the things that I go deep into is not only the structure, you know, which which is, you know, predominantly a lib directory with with some files in it. But what do you need to do to load those things inside? Right. And if you have dependencies, uh, you know, this sort of dependency tree, how does that take place? Um, what do you need to you know, because you need to write more than just, um, you know, make sure the code's loaded. Right. You need to have a module namespace. You need to make sure everything's within it or that's sort of being the good citizen in the community. Um, you know, what, what are these like kind of community approved uh, ways to put it out there? And so loading is a, is a separate chapter in the book, which that was one of the hardest things for me when I was starting to understand why it was that way and, and what was happening. You know, it was all very manual in the end when I looked at it compared to, you know, what I had known from Rails. Um, but at the same time, it, it this is truly, you know, uh, lower level Ruby, right? And, and, and it makes sense when you put it all together. But uh, it also gives you some insight to what is Rails actually doing, you know, which is also an interesting, interesting topic. But having knowing where th things are loaded, how they load, um, knowing that this is just, uh, you know, a bunch of Ruby files put together, um, it's pretty incredible. It works the way it does. But um, there's more to just, yeah, like, you know, Chuck said, throwing stuff in a lib directory. You actually have to load the files. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. And Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know, and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is 1000 bucks, and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at hired.com slash Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm also curious. Um, so one of the things that I go back and forth on with gems is testing. And in particular, I, I kind of have two thoughts about it. One is, is that um, usually when we ship a gem, we ship everything, including the tests. And, you know, the people running the gem don't necessarily need those tests, only the people who are developing on it. So if they're going to customize it in some way, then they're going to want those tests. But otherwise... They don't need them, but yet all of that stuff tends to ship with the gems. And I've wondered for a while if there's a better way to handle that. Because, I mean, people wind up using like RVM or, you know, gem sets within RVM. So they have four, five, six, seven copies of the gem on their machine. And, you know, then they have copies of all the fixtures and testing stuff and everything else. Is, is, is there a solution to that? Or is that just something we live with as Rubyists? Yeah, it's a good point. I, I guess that's... Dividing the line between, you know, did you download the gem for your application to just use, you know, the public interface or did you download it for development, right? Because development, obviously, you need all those other extra things. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know. I, I don't know offhand, uh, but it'd be interesting to know 
you know, the trade-off, uh, whether it be file size or just storage needed on, say, RubyGems, for instance. You know, I don't. Uh, I think most gems are probably sourced from GitHub at this point. Uh, I'm taking a guess, but you know, there obviously need to keep those files there. But if RubyGems didn't have all that extra development, you know, uh, focused files and content, would would it be more efficient? Probably, right? Um, I'm not sure how much, but um, maybe the simpler, it's certainly simpler to sh- you know push everything around together from like the an infrastructure standpoint. Um, so it's always there. But I hear what you're saying. I, this doesn't doesn't do your Rails application much good if you have tests that are not actually being run or a bunch of fixtures that get downloaded on your production server and then loaded up every every time your your process starts. One other argument I get into with people a lot, because I kind of agree. I don't know if there's a good answer for that one, but I was curious what your take was. Um, another one that I get in arguments with people about a little bit is whether or not they should write like the entire system into a gem or whether or not they should break it up. So, for example, Rails is a gem. Now, Rails mm. is mostly a wrapper around a whole bunch of other gems. So it pulls in Active Record and JSON and all the other gems out there. But... Um, you know, it's it's a huge gem. Or even if you uh, you know come down a little bit and look at Active Record, or Active Record's built on Active Model, and Active Model does a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Active Model actually has like five or six modules that you can pull into your own class to make an Active Record compatible class. So, I mean, do we write these? Should should it all be in one ginormous gem, or should you be able to just pull in, say, Active Model? Uh, validations or active model, I forget what all of them are, um, but you know, just pull in those little pieces and then compose your, your library out of that. So I only need the, the validations, I don't need the other bit that active model provides. Yeah, well we've certainly seen, I think a push to smaller gems, um, you know, with the, the dry, um, kind of dry organization that, that, you know, they're starting with some smaller focus gems um, and you've certainly seen probably some element of, uh, of that with the, you know, coming from the JavaScript community, right? And there was a big, big thing about small modules and that's a whole nother ball of worms, I guess. But, um, it's, yeah, you know, I think, I think the, I, I also heard a lot of things about, um, you know, the engines. I think some of that was the engines question. The fact that that was, you know, one of the more common questions spurred from, a lot of people's interest in, you know, microservices over the past couple of years, um, where you would end up with, you know, say your production application and then maybe an admin application and then maybe something else for marketing, right? If you're, if you're making a product and then, but the core models all needed to be the same. And a lot of the questions were around, well, I need an engine because my business models, you know, they're the active record based models were common across all these apps. And I want to extract those and put them in a gem. You know, how would I do it or how would I do it if I want to like, you know, have migrations? And I, I sense that people were doing it because that's what, um, that's what they were led to believe should happen. And it, and it felt like the path of least resistance, maybe, um, clearly you could, you could copy those to another app, which yeah, I've done a number of times and it works just fine. Um, but in a lot of sense, you know, the real early on, you know, Ruby, at least when I, when I was starting Ruby, you know, it was all about being dry, right. And, um, not having this, this logic, uh, all over the place, you know, duplicated and, and while dry 
doesn't necessarily mean you know exactly the duplication of the lines. People took it as that. And so anytime you copy and pasted something, that was seen as like a no-no, right? And they wanted to do the do the right thing and extract it. And I've seen people get into some pretty dicey situations with just extracting business models, which you can imagine are, are, are part of everything you do, right, in the core of it. And so really working out the testing strategy with that and um, they always need to be involved in the, you know, the host app to work properly. I've seen that really go down some bad paths. Uh, and, and for personal experience on products I've worked on, too, that were technically engines that had um, database back tables and um it can get it can get messy, especially when you're sharing it across across a bunch of applications, and then you make one little change, right? And you need to update it everywhere. Um, that may or may not be the case if you would copy the file, depending on what that the application needs. Um, I've actually been I, there. So, uh, DevChat.tv. Yeah, you've all used the app that did this. Um, <laughs> DevChat.tv. Before I moved it back to WordPress, was actually set up. It had an admin app. It had a sponsorships app. It had um, you know, a bunch of other, yeah, services basically that made up the entire system. And, uh, I wouldn't say it was painful. It was closer to excruciating. Um, okay. But yeah, you know, I definitely hear what you're saying there. And yeah, in some well, ways, it what were some of the bigger issues that you remember? Well, for example, uh, sometimes we'd make a change we didn't think would affect one system, but would affect another system. And then it would turn out that, oh, wait, this does affect that system. Or we'd, we'd get through a deploy and we'd find out that three versions ago in our core gem, oh, there was this small issue that, you know, we changed something and it turned out not to be an issue in the app we were actually working on, but it did turn out to be an issue in the app that we, you know, this other app. The other thing was, was it was just, there was a lot of mental gymnastics that had to happen just to keep track of what was happening where and when and why. And so even when everything worked, it was like, okay, I'm making this change. I think it's going to have this effect. But we were never quite sure because the use cases were different in all the different apps. And the only way to really test it and make sure that everything worked everywhere was to run it everywhere. But nobody, nobody wanted to actually run those tests everywhere when we changed the core. And so we right. had a sample app that we ran the tests on, and it, you know, it caught most of the bugs that we wound up writing before they ever got deployed but at the same time I mean it was just yeah it was really really painful and you know being in a position you know if I had to do it over again yeah I would probably consider just writing those gen or writing those models into each system and then having one system responsible for the migrations hmm. and because um, that's the other bit that you have to deal with right um, is, is those migrations and if you uh, you know, if they're sharing a database. But the other thing is, is then I could just put the logic that each of those apps cares about. And if there is some shared logic somewhere, then we could just break that into a module that isn't dependent on the state of the, um, of the, of the model and just do it that way. But yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I work on an app now that um, has, does a lot of that. And I've, I've just copied it over. And, you know, what one of the things that I noticed real early on was um, the you know, in a Rails app, for instance, um, the validations, you know, for, for the core production app for customers, um, were different than what might've been needed for an admin. Right. And so like, you know, you get in a state, maybe, um, the customer did something to their account and it's in a place that's not great. Right. And they need to come fix it or something. You go into the admin app and the admin has, some um, 
ways to change. You know, if it's a SaaS app, you might have to ch change the subscription or a trial date and you go to update that and it's no longer valid because of some things that the customer is controlling, right? And so validation fails and it says, you know, their email is invalid and you're like, well, I'm changing the trial date. You know, I don't, I don't care about the email, you know, and whether those are, let, let's assume they're on the same model. Um, but then you're stuck, right? And you're in a position where you say, okay, well, maybe I don't want this validation on uh, the admin app, right? Now, now you're left to say, well, if it was a, uh, an extracted gem, well, maybe I, do I put a conditional in, you know, I don't know, like, do I give the hosts, you know, some name and say, well, don't apply this if it's that host, right? And then you go down this rabbit hole of, of conditional logic, which, yeah, yeah, from the start, you're like, man, I wish I just copied that model in there. It's like four lines, right, for the admin app. Um, so I, I've, I've copied them lately um, and been perfectly happy with it. There's been a few cases where, uh, you know, I change one thing and, and say the production kind of customer facing app and um, it was necessary for the admin app. But I've also sort of reserved myself to the fact that the admin app can blow up every once in a while and it's not the end of the world. And I don't want the customer app to do that. So you know, I'll take those instances where I just need to like fudge a line or I forgot to make a change over. Um, I'll take those over, over, you know, knocking production over for sure. I'm sure we made a few people kind of throw up in their mouths. You copy code. Yeah, right. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured your database is fast, reliable, and always on. It's production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer. So go check them out. You can pick from nine databases, including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, ScyllaDB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale. Automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with, with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes, and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Set up as fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com slash devchat. Uh, I have a question. I want to get more into like your experience, like with the idea of the why behind building certain things. I want to get into the uh, why of building Sucker Punch. Like I said, we just spoke about Sucker Punch about a week ago, and I really wanted to ask your opinion on uh, why did you feel like the community need that type of gem? Uh, it says it was heavily, uh, it uses concurrent Ruby, heavily influenced by Sidekick and Girl Friday. But did you uh, see um, that Sidekick and Girl Friday were maybe building that you feel like Sucker Punch was able to uh, help the community out? Yeah, I'll give you sort of like a more long-winded <laughs> process of this because it, it was sort of a, a stepping ground for me. Um, when I mentioned I wanted to dig into the open source ecosystem and do some work there, part of it was um, I wanted to just learn about some uh, code or um, approaches that I hadn't seen before. And so I was I was pretty isolated in my role at the time in that you know, I wasn't on a big team. I wasn't surrounded by people that had tons of experience. And I really wanted to learn. And I, I thought a great way to do that was to contribute. And um, one of the things I, I knew that I was um, – that I needed to work on and needed to understand better was uh, multi-threading um, and and how it you know how you can implement it in Ruby and at the time Sidekick was you know and probably still is the most popular project to uh, deal with multi-threading um, and I approached 
uh, Mike Perham, the maintainer, and and was looking to get involved. And at the time, I, we were a big user of of Sidekick, and the dashboard for uh, Sidekick was something that I used all the time. But there were some elements of the dashboard that I wanted to be better. There were some pieces that, uh, for instance, you know, when you looked at the dashboard, you could refresh it and it would give you some stats, but it didn't auto refresh. And so and there were times when we were sort of batch running jobs and I'd want to know how many processed in the last couple seconds. And I couldn't figure that out um, just by uh, just by looking at the dashboard, maybe refreshing a second later and trying to do some math or whatever. So um, if you've seen Sidekick today, you know, there's some kind of process graphs and how many jobs are are processing, and that was something that I wanted to implement. But it turns out that you know m- much of the backend sort of API data piece was not there, and so I spent a lot of time digging into Sidekick, which caused me to you know kind of dig into gems, understand how they were structured, and then ultimately because I wanted to be exposed to a project like Sidekick with Threads, um, I figured well you know in a way I, I can contribute my experience with web and maybe add this functionality to the web UI ultimately sort of just getting exposed to the other pieces that I didn't know. So it would just help me kind of move along my experience with multi-threading and uh, within Ruby. So I dug in there and, and that's what sort of got me exposed to all that and feel more comfortable. And then at some point um, I was I was doing some kind of apps on the side just for fun. And I had an app that was hosted on Heroku and it needed to do some heavy background work. And you know, dragging in Sidekick uh, certainly would have worked, but you know, being a sort of uh, you know thrifty night and weekend developer on these random toy apps, I didn't necessarily want to spin up a whole another dyno for just the the sidekick worker. And at the time, before uh, you know, this was before Heroku's pricing model changed, but the dyno was I think thirty five dollars, and then you had a free web one. So it would have meant you know this app that I didn't really care about, but actually people were using. Surprisingly, you know, I'd have to start incurring some costs there. Um, so you know, being sort of like savvy developer type, right? First thing was like, well, how can I not spend the money? And one of those ways was, well, if I were able to do this work that I want to do in the background in line, um, it wouldn't cost me any money, right? Because I have this free web dyno and um, I wouldn't have to spin up a new process to run these background jobs. So um, Girl Friday was a gem that at the time uh, Mike Perham also uh, maintained and um, it, it had that same model that um, yeah, within within a single web process, you could uh, do some background work. And I, I talk, I you know, after talking with him quite a bit through my sidekick work, um, I realized that it, it was an implementation um, that was older, and yeah, I don't think it was uh, something he wanted to continue the way it was. And at the time, uh, Sidekick used Celluloid, which was a you know still is a, a framework to use um, do multi-threading in Ruby. And so I got into that, and I thought, well, this is Seems like it'd be pretty easy using celluloid the way Sidekick does, but just do it in a single process. And so that was that was part of my sort of learning experience about all this um, multi-threading and you know how can how does celluloid work? And so the first version of Sucker Punch was using celluloid. And actually, to be frank, it it wasn't very complex at all. It was a few files, and it was really a DSL on top of um, celluloid. Because Celluloid had all the tools I needed to make a background queue, but it it was somewhat verbose in a way that you would set it up, and it wasn't clear when you were like right you weren't necessarily writing a job. You were you know pushing this thing onto uh, a mailbox in one of the classes that Celluloid was loaded into, and so just creating sort of a an easy to use um, DSL like Sidekick did for jobs and queues, doing the same thing with um, Celluloid was easy, uh, and so Sucker Punch was born out of this need to 
you know, run jobs within a single web process and not, you know, not incur the cost of another process or server cost. It doesn't necessarily have to be monetary, but you know, process wise, your production servers wouldn't need an extra process either. Um, but having said that, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that that's like going to save everyone's day because there's obviously some downsides to that, you know, there's memory bloat in the single web process. And, um, obviously if the web process dies, your jobs die too. So if you queue up a thousand jobs and you cut the process off, you know, the number of jobs that didn't finish are gone, right? Cause they're stored in memory. They're not backed by a data store like Redis, uh, as in the case with sidekick. So, um, there's some trade-offs, but for me, you know, I was doing work at the time that, um, that didn't matter. And so I would always get updates and, and the update, if I missed one in between, would have taken care of the one in the middle. So it wasn't a huge deal. But, you know, to this day, I still on the sucker punch readme still suggest that, you know, it's best used for things like logs, right? Well, uh, logs in a sense that if, if you don't care of a few drop, you know, they don't drop. But, you know, if for some reason your server dies, uh, they will be lost if there was a bunch queued up. So there are some trade-offs, but at, at the same time, for my use case, it didn't really matter. So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking very holistically um, about, you know, what does the community need and um, is Girl Friday, you know, used and what's the next version of Girl Friday? It was really just a, a use case for me. Um, and I used Girl Friday in the app that I was, that I was working on. It worked just fine. Uh, but also at the same time, it was like, oh, what, what if we did this differently? And so, you know, I don't know whether it was just about visibility into the project or right time or whatever, but you know, people seem to latch onto it and, and it was used. I, I feel like it's being used in a similar case where you're, you have a small app, you don't want to really have, um, an extra process to run or that costs money or whatever. And you're trying to do things, um, cost, you know, efficiently and, and sucker punch gets dragged into those situations. Roger that. All right. Thank you. So I want to go back to, uh, gems here for a minute. Um, because there's another end of gems other than just, uh, Hey, we're going to publish this. Don't name it something that somebody else has already named it. Um, and that is getting it published to Ruby gems. So, you know, in the, uh, in, you know, in the example of Sucker Punch, you know, what does it take to put it up there so somebody else can use it? I think, I think I've done it. I'm, I'm guessing Jerome's done it, but, you know, for those people who they get their little library written or maybe their big library written and they go, okay, I want other people to be able to pull this down through Ruby gems. How does that get on somebody else's computer? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when, once you do it the first time and that create an account on Ruby gems, it's all, it's all easily handled. And so, um, Realistically, you know, at this point, if I want to release a new version of Sucker Punch, I type rake release and that's the end of it. And assuming I've versioned everything properly, you know, incremented versions, let's say I'm on version 0.4 and I want to go to 0.5, you know, I bump a, a version file up and then add the, you know, appropriate change logs and, and do all those other sort of uh, developer responsible tasks. Uh, rake release is, is the end of it. Um, if you're starting, you know, if you're not, you don't have an account on Ruby gems, you would, you would create an account there and then, um, you would associate your gem, which is done through the gem spec file to, uh, your email or your account that you've signed up with. And after that, um, I think the first time it asks you to sign in from the command line, uh, it all just works from there. So it's, it's pretty easy. Yeah. And if I remember right, when you go to, when you sign up for that account, it actually, um, it'll give you a walkthrough. It'll tell you what commands to run in order to get it up. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's you know that's one of the benefits with using Bundler and that um, your rake file has some files loaded to make all those tasks pretty easy for you. Um, I think there's a release command and install, and there's there's probably some more, but um, it has everything you need, and and it, it is pretty easy to get started. 
So are there any gotchas then to this whole process of writing writing a gem or publishing a gem? Yeah, I think the only gotchas are are more about um, kind of doing things in a way that is maintainable and helpful. And, you know, as, as a community, we have a, a ton of options for all different kinds of functionality. And I think the Ruby community has grown up sort of feeling like, okay, just add another gem to the gem file and your know, life, life's problems will be solved. And that's sometimes the case, but you know, there's also plenty of gems that may not be sort of good citizens in the ecosystem. And, and we're left to sort of figure that out on our own, whether it's we inspect the gem itself or we take recommendations from colleagues that we trust. Um, there is definitely an element of trusting how that, how that gem is set up and what it does, right? Because you're, you're ultimately putting this code into your app and saying, you know, I trust everything it does. Not only that, but I, I potentially trust newer versions of this gem, right? Depending on how you load the gem into your application uh, and whether you allow it updates and you do bundle update regularly or you say only a certain minor release, um, you know, it's something that that we're allowing this code to be in our application. So, you know, I think there's there's some element, you know, again, going back to that responsibility piece, yeah, really knowing how these things work um, is sort of being that, that good Ruby community citizen, um, because if this code will be used, you know, and, and we hope you hope that it is uh, useful for other people, um, it'll it'll make your application better. But but also, you know, it could it could have some uh, downside to it, right? If we load some code and it's like in this global namespace and we overwrite some methods and you're not really sure what happens, you see these issues a lot of times. If you look at uh, gem, you know, the gem repos that there's questions or uh, you know people are confused. Um, I think just having that all kind of straightened out and knowing kind of the lay of the land really helps to be be that good good citizen in the community uh, if you're going to publish and and maintain gems especially and that's that's another piece of it is is the maintenance part i mean clearly there's a responsibility to putting something out there but then you know letting it die that's not really doing anybody any good so if you extract some functionality from your app or you know, something that uh, you have an expertise in that you believe others will use, you know, you're really kind of sending a message that unless you say otherwise, obviously, um, that this is out there and, you know, uh, you may not update it ever, but you also, you know, try to be respectful about the state that the code is in, whether it should be used, whether it's, you know, you feel good about it, that kind of thing. Because, um, yeah, there's plenty that I'm sure we've all seen that have sort of rotted and um, and you really don't know what to expect. And so whether that's looking at the gem and understanding uh, what to look for, you know, do you look in there and there's no test, there's no spec directory, there's no test directory. Um, how does that make you feel? Is that, is that good enough? You know, is the functionality minimal enough that it doesn't really matter to you? You know, all those things are a lot of elements that go into, you know, trusting code, but, you know, adding a gem into your application is not a, is not a, you know, task that should be taken lightly and it does have potential consequences. So, um, I think there's a there's an element of scrutiny that's that's required to um, build you know long long standing applications that uh, won't be a maintenance burden. Gotcha. Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production. Then you need continuous integration, and I recommend Snap CI. 
SnapCI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks, and it works great to pull all of your information together about your application, make sure it's ready for production, let your team know if it fails, and overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at SnapCI.com. One other thing that I wanted to go into is I know some people go out and they write yet another YAML parser or something, right? And it's it's kind of a gee whiz project, and oh, this is fun, and I'm learning how to parse YAML, and then they think, well, you know, somebody else may want to use this. Should they release it as a gem for other people to grab? I don't see why not. You know, um, one of the things that you can hope for if you're going to release code is that others will chip in and help you if they want to see it pushed forward. So, you know, if there's some functionality that your new YAML parser does that, you know, others don't, but yet um, it's incomplete, you know, you'll you'll start to see pretty quickly that if people are using it, there'll either be issues or feedback, whether it's from Twitter, you know, whatever, uh, whatever place you want it sent. But um, I think starting to see that feedback, you know, you, you hope that not only will people add feature requests, but they'll also chip in. Um, and so one of the things you could do to be more explicit about that is on the readme, um, be explicit about your contributions and, and what you'd like changed or whether it's a, um, you know, a, already kind of pre-listed issues that you say, look, this is where I want it to go. Um, Sidekick's a, another great example of, I, I think Mike does a fantastic job of, of managing the project and he has the luxury of doing that because um, people are paying for the, you know, the, the paid versions of Sidekick to help fund, you know, his support of that. But you know, he'll put in an issue about um, a feature that's not there yet, but how he sort of wants it to work. And it's it start of, You'll see people chip in and, and offer some feedback about, well, in my app, this wouldn't work that way because of X, Y, and Z. And it's it's good to get feedback like that. So, um, but you know, you, whether you do it in, in an issue or in the README itself or through maybe a change log or, you know, there's a variety of ways to be explicit about what you want help with or how you want con contributions to work. Um, being explicit is, is a great first step. And and kind of fostering that sense of community and, and you know, making it clear that you'd love help if people are, are interested. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Jerome, why don't you start us off? <laughs> Roger that. Um, you know, it's close to the holidays. So right now, I and I know that everybody has geeks in their life and they're trying to figure out what to buy for, but they don't know what to buy. Uh so I chose one website in particular. That's my only pick for this week is uh, thinkgeek.com. Think it's a really fun website with a real, really, uh, <laughs> a really diverse set of gifts. My favorite um, one personally is the No, I Will Not Fix Your Computer Tea. Uh, that is uh, something that I saw recently that I was like, I have like, a hundred people in my contacts that if I buy this for you, it'd be a perfect gift for. So that's uh, that's my pick for this week. Yeah, I've actually told uh, my my family, my brothers and sisters, my wife's brothers and sisters, and everybody else. I'm like, look, if if you aren't either my parents or her parents or our grandparents, um, the answer is no, unless you catch me when I'm like high on something. <laughs> so. Well, uh, I have a wife that will just yell at me on their behalf. So basically, it's a um, immediate family, both sides uh, extension. But outside of that, 
no, once it gets to cousins, I'm like, no, I can't, I can't help you, go away. Yeah, I have nine brothers and sisters, and it was happening on a rather frequent basis. That's when I, that's when I put my foot down. Yeah. Um, I'll jump in with a couple of picks here. Uh, the first pick I have is um, I've been playing around with um, with Facebook ads. And it turns out that you can actually, I, I found the lookalike audience on Facebook ads a while back and I thought, oh, that's cool. So essentially what you do is you upload a series of emails and then they find the people on Facebook that have those emails and then they munge through their profiles and they figure out kind of the common threads between those people. And so then you can advertise to people like the people on that list. What I learned is, is that you can also upload a list like say your email list and you can retarget ads back to those people. So instead of a lookalike list, it's the list. And so um, I, I think that's pretty awesome. And I'm, I'm looking at some ways to, you know, make people a little bit more aware of things like DevOps Remote Comp um, and stuff like that. But anyway, it, it's been really awesome to kind of learn about these things. Um, I picked it up from a mastermind group, and that's the second pick I'm going to put out there is um, having a mastermind group. So. Um, I, I do one mastermind group that's live every week. It's on entreprogrammers.com. Um, and then I actually, I have two others that I meet with every week. Um, one just started, the other one I've been in for about a year and a half. Um, and the difference is mainly that um, between the three, I think three is too many actually, you know, two is, is enough, one is enough if you've got the right group. but. Um, the one group is focused primarily on business. The other one is focused primarily, we talk about business, but we also talk about like family and kids and relationships and stuff. And so I, I kind of get two different sets of input from them. Um, but yeah, so I talk about things that I'm trying to do better or things that are not going the way I want or things like that. And they encourage me to do better. They give me suggestions on how I can do those things better and all those things. So um, having a group like that that you meet with every week and you check in and you have some accountability and they, you know, they help you figure this stuff out uh, has been invaluable. So if you're out there, even if you're not in business for yourself, uh, you know, just for career and family and friends and everything else, um, if it's just nice to have that input in your life. So uh, I highly recommend to people that they go out and they find people who have similar concerns to them that have different experiences than them and form a group and then share your experience and help each other out. Um, been very, very helpful to me. So I guess the overall pick, if you're gonna put a bullet point on it, is mastermind groups, but there's a ton more than that. And it comes out of the book, Think and Grow Rich, um, which is a terrific book too, so I'll pick that too. Uh, Brandon, what are your picks? Cool, my first pick is uh, somewhat self-serving in that it's the app that I work on every day, but it's called Bark, and it's a we make software to help keep kids safe online. So if you have kids you know, on social media, email, text, uh, and you're worried about both incoming and outgoing messages that uh, may not be appropriate. We make some software to do that. I'm really proud of the work we've done and, and some of the things that we've been able to uh, help families with. Um, and then I have two non-technical picks. Um, as we someone who, oh, you do? Yeah. That That's part. exciting. Yeah. Well, I appreciate awesome. it. Thanks. Um, two non-technical picks. The first is uh, as someone who doesn't love uh, cold weather, I, I struggle with the right socks and working at home and slippers and, and whatever. So I recently got into merino wool socks and, um, as a runner, this comes up in running socks a lot, but you know, it's great at moisture wicking. And anyway, I found a, 
they're all also pretty expensive at times. So I found some socks called People Socks on Amazon, and it's a four pack, and it's um, only twenty two dollars. Where you can find a single pair of these types of socks uh, for that price at times too. So really high concentration merino wool, and and they've been awesome so far. We're only a month or and a half into it, but so far so good. Um, and my last pick is a book called The Food Lab. I recently got it. I'm not a huge cook, but I enjoy eating and I, I enjoy cooking when I do it. Um, this book is a huge book, probably a thousand pages or so, but it has tons of technical uh, experiments with food. Um, this is a MIT engineer that um, got into the food industry after school and uh, just kept down that path. But he took a very scientific approach to learning about food and, and how things cook um, into really fine details. And I think most uh, engineer types would would enjoy this if you have any interest in food or whatever uh, topics like, you know, how to make the perfect burger, the perfect hard boiled egg. I've found it fascinating so far and I'm just through the breakfast section. So um, it's called the Food Lab, uh, Better Home Cooking Through Science. And even if you don't love to cook, I think there's some like fascinating science uh, and, and really data driven approach to cooking meals and and making, you know, things great, uh, through preparation and, and cooking. So anyway, that's, it's been fun for me and it'll certainly give me plenty of entertainment since, you know, I'm probably a hundred pages into a thousand. So very cool. If people want to follow up with you, see what you're doing, uh, read a blog, check you on Twitter, anything like that, where do they go? Yeah. The website, brandonhilkert.com. Um, I have a regular blog that I post out to, you can sign up for the mailing list there if you're interested in keeping up or just uh, deck back every once in a while. I'm Brandon Hilker on Twitter too, same with GitHub. Pretty easy to find me. Um, I don't really hide anywhere, but uh, you can find all my work on those places. And um, you know, I would love to, to hear from people if they have questions or thoughts or whatever. Uh, I'd love to chat, so open to it. And if people want to get your book? Yeah, it's, it's, it's off my site, so it's probably the easiest way. Just go to brandonhilker.com. There's a book link on the left there and, and click through and you'll see the book. Um, there's a couple packages up there if you're interested with screen uh, screencast and and some other stuff for your team if you want. But otherwise, the, e- the ebook is up there, uh, a bunch of different versions and everything, and you should have everything you need from there. There's some sample screencasts and, and a sample chapter if you're interested in that too. So, uh, yeah, I'd love, love to hear your feedback on it. Awesome. And your, uh, your notes for us for the show says that you can get 25% off. If you're a listener, just follow our link. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'll have a link up there. So um, yeah, feel free to, to hit that and um, let me know if anybody has any feedback or thoughts. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for coming, Brandon. Thanks a lot again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brandon, for your insight. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun. All right. We'll catch everyone next week. <laughs>